Welcome to Stork Talks with Zoe and Tom. The Storks have been part of life in The Hague for centuries. Have you spotted one yet? Each week, Stork Talks delivers a range of stories, news and anecdotes. For the next hour, we'll take you under our wings as we discover the city of peace and justice. This is truly a special place to live and we invite you to tune in and discover it with us each Thursday between 8 and 9 p.m. on 92.0 Den Haag FM. Stork Talks. So, sorry, to, onwards to the first segment of today, um, the Stork of the Week. Who's the Stork of the Week? Well, Tom, this week I spoke with a fascinating man. Uh, his na- name is Tay El Rujula. He is originally from Beirut, uh, but now he is a resident of The Hague. Last week we spoke with him about a book he has recently published, so his name may, may sound familiar. Um, it details his experiences living in a refugee camp for two years, being separated from his mother at age five. He still has not met up with her um, in real life and how he came to the Netherlands and is now a cryptocurrency entrepreneur. But this week, we are focusing on his role in spearheading a crowdfunding initiative for those affected by the recent blasts in Beirut. And I spoke with Tay about this at the Humanity Hub. Tay, uh, you were behind a crowdfunding initiative uh, for the horrendous blast that took place in Beirut, and it's called after disaster relief tell us a little bit more about that the after disaster relief uh, funding started 24 hours when uh, the beirut blast took place um, it took place in the same streets corners neighborhoods that i grew up in and um, we couldn't just uh, sit down and you know do nothing especially that the past five to seven years we have been involved in beirut building the largest cryptocurrency community there so uh, we we didn't want to see our efforts just wash away and uh, i cannot go back to beirut now to help so the only way that i can help now is to uh, through this fundraising campaign Right now, you're a native of Beirut. I know it um, It holds a special place in your heart. And we were talking earlier and you were telling me some, some of the interesting dynamics of this very ancient, special city that has had quite an illustrious history, currently finds itself in a very bad state. What are your hopes for the city? We have to tell people what happened there. The size of the blast, no one can describe it in emotions or in words because what has been destroyed is the spirit of the people that, that, that have been living there in a pandemic, in a financial meltdown, in a political turmoil, in wars with our neighbors, whether it's Syria or Israel, with constant discussions on what will happen to the 1.2 million refugees residing in Lebanon. So it all added up, and this was not what they call the, the drop that made the cup flood. No, this was a complete you know, faucet that was open and the water just spilled everywhere. Beirut is a very special city, not of its geographical context, of its historical context. And I advise uh, the listeners to you know, go and research what is Beirut, when it was built. Beirut is one of the most 
old ancient cities around the world uh, it is as old as Baghdad and uh, it is as old as Greece so it, it, it has a historical context it has a geographical uh, importance and it has a very special type of uh, people who, who live there Now you mentioned that um, the, the part of the city that was destroyed was largely the Christian part. We spoke a little bit about aid coming in, of course, from the West, and particularly France has shown a great interest because it has colonial links. And I also asked you and said, you know, what would be the sort of the ideal outcome for Beirut, or how would you like to see the city moving forward? Yeah. Just, you know, from an outside perspective, we're trying to understand what would a, a good outcome look like? Yeah. The good outcome, and I would say the best outcome for Beirut now, uh, is to rebuild it. And rebuild it in a way that it is sustainable. Rebuild it in a way where we can see bicycle lanes, we can see tramways, we can see uh, solar panels, we can see some a, a touch of technology in bringing the city back to life. Um, and we hope as well that as it is being rebuilt, the uh, religious and the ethnic and the uh, differentiating factors in society, they abolish. Mm. And mm. we just think of ourselves as residents of that city, uh, together with the power of the diaspora, together with the level of enthusiasm among the youth of Lebanon, who were the first people to take the stick and the broom to clean the streets and to help people. We didn't wait for international NGOs to land in Lebanon and help us. No, the people themselves, they took initiative. Mm. Although the country is segregated by religion. The, the country from when you're five years old, they teach you how to put your loyalty to your sect and to your religion more than to your country. And yes, I said it, it has been the Christian, the Christian side of the city uh, mostly destroyed. And that's a fact, you know, Jumeizi, Maram Khayel, uh, all these uh, areas where they are, you know, heavily populated by the, the Christian neighborhoods. That doesn't mean, you know, if it was a Muslim neighborhood, we would have uh, did more or do less. Or, But it is, it is the fact to show that there is diversity in the city that we cannot ignore and we need to leverage. So together with the international community together with the diaspora and together with the people who are still living there there is a chance that hey this green field that we have now this open field that we can build a state-of-the-art port we can build state-of-the-art roads we can bring electricity to the city and things that are basically human rights Okay, so it's quite a special story behind your crowdfunding initiative in that you were approached by a doctor in Sweden yeah. who, who said he was willing to make a contribution. Just tell us the history of that because that's quite interesting. 24 hours after the blast, we started the GoFundMe campaign and our enthusiasm was focused on rebuilding what was uh, destroyed, especially among the families that I know personally having been uh, raised there and lived there for a long time. The donations were flowing in, and a few days later, 
We got a call from a physician in Sweden, Dr. Baker, who is the president of Bring Hope Humanitarian Foundation. He said, hey, you are targeting $500,000 as a donation to uh, you know, provide glass, wood, and doors for the broken houses, especially for the vulnerable families, uh, single mothers, women, and children. I want to match that donation for you. But I will not give you cash. We will give you products. And we will give you hygiene products that are targeting the same target group that you have. And I was really happy. And I said, okay, let's do that. The only cost that is available for us to cover is some paperwork that needs to be done uh, and the shipping costs and some logistic expenses. So uh, we raised 300,000 uh, euros in terms of uh, goods. We're talking exactly about 163,900 items in terms of uh, diapers, uh, lotions, uh, baby oil, shampoo, soap, sanitizers, masks. And uh, so we're really happy and grateful uh, for that. All what is left now is to cover the expenses, 10,000 euros, and we can distribute those items to the people who need in Lebanon. And we already have as well our relations with the community there. So we work with directly community-driven initiatives and not through large uh, donors. Right. And now, how much have you raised so far of that 10,000? So far, we have uh, 2,738 euros raised. So if people can go to the uh, GoFundMe page. They can look at After Disaster Relief Campaign for Lebanon. And they see my, my name there as the team leader of this, uh, this campaign. They can see the contracts that we've signed with the, the Bring Hope Humanitarian Foundation, the contracts that we've signed with the uh, Cedars Beirut Lions Club in uh, Beirut itself. So we have just this very small obstacle of 7,500 euros and we can bring 300,000 euros worth of value to, to Beirut. I think we all know what we need to do. Thank you, Tay. Thank you. Thank you so much. I, I mean, yeah, it, it's as, as a radio DJ, you shouldn't be lost for words, but I'm just really impressed by what he's done in, in such a short time frame. I mean, um, I think there's both humor to his story and way he looks at what he would like to do with Rebuild, but of course, it's, it's such a serious matter. The way he, he approaches it is just, yeah, that, that, fantastic. I agree. It's a very positive um, can-do approach. And I think that's an inspiration, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, not only the fact that he, he's taken this approach, but he's been very successful in it. Absolutely. Uh, I think it really helps if you have somebody from that city who can sort of speak on those people's behalf. I think it becomes more meaningful. And it So uh, the, the details of the where to donate again? Yes. Yeah, so it's on this crowdfunding platform. We will put those details on tomorrow on our Instagram and on our Facebook page. So if you did hear this and you want to help reach that 10,000 mark, please please check out the details. Fantastic. Now, each month, as you know, we focus on a theme of current interest and like stalks, time flies. This week, we discuss the question that is on everyone's mind. Is it time for a vaccine? Last week, I saw a funny and fascinating discussion about the issue of testing here in the Netherlands on Zondag met Lubach. Um, but simultaneously in the news, we are covered with stories about challenge trials, um, which are being discussed both in the Netherlands and in the UK in efforts to speed up the creation of a viable vaccine. 
Yes, now, challenge trials, for those of you who are not sure, um, they're very interesting from an ethical perspective and, of course, for practical reasons. Basically, what it means is that volunteers are exposed directly to the virus uh, in order to see more quickly whether the vaccine being tested produces some sort of immune response. So this brings us, of course, onto the burning question of how long until we have a viable vaccine. And on the program this week, we have Dr. To Renato Romani with us to discuss this and other related questions. Now, Dr. Romani hails from Brazil, but he now lives in The Hague. He's recently been involved in the development of a COVID program in Brazil. Thanks so much for joining us this evening on Stalk Talks, Renato. Yeah. Hello, guys. Thank you for having me. It's, it's the enthusiasm for me, which, which makes me already love that we have him on the show. Well, I want to say welcome as well. Welcome, Renato. Um, one of the first questions that we wanted to ask you is, um, how long until we get a vaccine, in your opinion? Well, that's a million-dollar question, right? So um, what we saw, and we saw more in the news than actually in the newspapers or in scientific um, articles, we believe that we have something in February, March, to, to roll out to the population, it's a huge task. So we know that we need to test more, we need to have more data. So it will depend on the governments and how they want to go to this if, to the population. So we believe that to be fair, April, May, June sounds to me a time to go. But Even though we probably sorry. have the vaccine, doesn't mean that we can vaccine the whole country. So it, it, it has a lot of things related to the vaccine, from the logistics of the distribution, so who will be the first guys to receive the data. So it's, it's a lot of things they need to be discussed. So the point is, we will have the scene. I don't know, it will be in six months or a year, but I think that is the window that we are expecting. Um, okay, so so that's very interesting, uh, Renato, what you say. And of course, as you, as you said, it's a highly complex business, but um, just the fact of having that initial vaccine, and I would assume it will go out first to the most vulnerable, I think that will have a very important knock-on effect for the rest of society even if not everybody immediately has access to the vaccine? Oh, yeah. It, 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 it changes the game. So you see the data now, and we have more people with uh, uh, coronavirus the virus and the COVID is, is a, a disease, right? So we have more people with the disease now in Europe again. So mm. we're kind of second wave coming up. Mm. And and this thing will, it's only, it only, I think we can find the end of these only with the vaccine. So that's that's so important for sure. It is it is it's really important. So I guess that that brings us on to the next question. What do you think some of the main misconceptions are um, that we have about the creation of a vaccine? As you've already mentioned, there there's so much around it, but of course it's it's very important. So we hear lots of stories about it. People share lots of stories. Oh yeah, I think it's I don't know. I can I can I, I like to. For me, that inside of the medical field, the vaccine is something so obvious that it's sometimes hard to speak with people that don't believe on vaccines. Uh, we need to think about the public health, right? So it's, it's like roads. You can have the best car, but you need to have a good road. If we, otherwise, it doesn't really match. So if, if we don't have the roads, we cannot use our cars. So if we don't have vaccines, to live in a public environment will be kind of very, very, very tough. And the coronavirus is showing us that it's not so simple. People die because of that. So why to take the risk? And I don't believe in, in conspiracy theories. I, I really come from, you know, very scientific background. And I, we really focus on, on real studies. 
I don't know. So I, I, I'm, I'm really sad about this misconception and, and about this untrust on the data that the scientists are trying to bring to the society. I think this is what actually shocked me sometimes. I think what's interesting is you bring up three different challenges when it comes to the vaccine. So first, the creation of it, then secondly, the, the distribution of it. And even if you distribute it to everyone equally, there's still some people who may not believe the, the vaccine itself. Yeah, of course, a lot of uh, interest in, on, involved in this situation. So the pharmaceutical companies, of course, so it's, it's, it's a lot of... Yeah, but these companies will make a lot of money on that, so that's why they want to push the vaccine. Yeah, that's true, but also we need to have the vaccine to for me to go to my bar and drink my beer, for example. Of course. <laughs> you know what I mean? So that is, I think, is very clear, uh, the path of what, what where we are, right? So yeah, I agree with you. It will be a very interesting discussion, but I think people need to trust on the scientists or even discuss with the scientists where are the collector effects and why this is better than have the disease itself. I mean, Renato, why do you think there has been this sort of rise in, in some sort of mistrust, perhaps, um, connected to this? I mean, I'm, I'm with you on this one. I, I go with the scientists and the science. But there has, uh, there has been a sort of a, a bit of a pushback or suspicion, shall we say, conspiracy theories. Why do you think this has happened? Well, uh, inside of the university world, let's say, or inside of the scientific world, you also have people that things different, right? So it's not a very common, uh, I would say, it's not like, oh, that, that is the solution. So we, have, we can have many solutions for the same problem. Mm -hmm. Therefore, a lot of people are trying to find the, the best way to offer this vaccine. When this information comes to the public, public see this as, oh, you see, if they don't know what they're trying, trying to say, it's hard for us to trust on them, which is actually makes sense. So the information and the education on this topic is key element for us to learn uh, and try to talk with people about the, the importance of this vaccine. So I think if you think about the problem will be related to the information and how to, to bring the correct information about the discussions that we are having inside of that scientific world. I think that seems to me that is the key element on this discussion, right? Yeah, I think what's interesting as well. So, well, let me put it this way. I think from, from my perspective, um, the, the, the communication about the vaccine and about the, the, the problems, it, I think it's quite a complex topic. So to find a way to discuss it in such a way that people can grasp the meaning and understand it in a way that um, becomes comprehensible and becomes followable, that is sort of might be difficult where you have this super academic understanding of the topic and this, I don't want to say the common people, but the people who aren't an expert in that field and where you can find that middle ground to sort of connect with each other and, and believe the science in that. Yeah, yeah that, that is actually t t t uh, taking your point. That is fantastic. So we have in a crazy time in, in, the, in our history where we have so much knowledge that it's even hard to explain to people what we're doing. So it's 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 really, really interesting time. Well, interesting, a word that can be meaning <laughs> in many ways, right? It's really hard for us to dominate the information. So I, I need to trust at some point. And was, trust um, this yeah. time is quite difficult. I was just going to say, it seems to me to come down to trust and that brings... Yeah, it, um, I think what is interesting is in, in Holland, we've seen some discrepancies. We've seen some people who, who disagree with what's, what's going on. Uh, there was in, in Dutch news something going on, people tweeting is, uh, in Dutch, ik doe niet mee, or uh, translated to I do not participate, where you actively saw people uh, sort of you know, rise up or protest against the new coronavirus uh, uh, restrictions. What, what message or how can we tell the story in a better sense than uh, the, to these people to sort of trust? I mean, what, what can we tell them? 
it is so hard because we need to show to them the statistics, the people that are sick. It's really, really hard. But we need to try to um, tell and show data and real facts to not to convince them, but to show the reality. So if you go to the bar with other people, you will have Corona. And the problem is, if you are under 200 people with Corona, one of you will have a lot of problems and probably cannot recover and can die. Do you want to take this chance? If you would take the chance, why I would need to take the chance? So you know what I mean? So that that is the balance in the society. So I, I It's a sort of a Russian roulette that you described there, I think, Renato. Yeah, at some point I'm sorry to say, but it, it sounds to me if if you know that someone has coronavirus in a party, do you go to the party? Well, it's of course it's your freedom to go and do what you want. And you can say, No, I will go there but I will maintain one meter one and a half meter distance, I will wash my hand, I will not go to not avoid the risk. So I agree that everybody has a different way to to avoid this problem. Mm. The point is everybody needs to avoid the problem. And that is I think it's hard to say and find a, a one one law fit all, but the best way would be to say to that guy with coronavirus, don't go to the party. And if I know the solution, I will be right now a very nice uh, politician in this world, I can tell you, because it's really, really hard (laughs) to find a solution for that. One thing that I loved, and that's something that when you speak about it and what message should we give is perhaps it's the message more to listen than to, to speak yourself. Um, I remember trying to get an interview during Corona time about the, the vaccine and almost anybody I spoke to in the medical world, world said like, sorry, that's not my expertise. I can't talk about it. I'm not an epidem- epi, uh, epidemiologist. Thank you, yeah, epidemiologist. <laughs> but Renata, just before we speak a little bit about your um, your own development of a COVID program in Brazil. I just wanted to ask you a final question there. You spoke about the importance of communication, which will obviously lead to more trust. Uh, just on that, do you feel, do you think maybe the Dutch government has not communicated enough? I know like some people say this has helped to sort of keep panic levels down and to take a sort of a down to earth, common sense approach. I mean, what, what do you think? It is a very, very tough uh, situation. If you saw, we talk about Brazil and we'll talk about Brazil in a few minutes. You saw a mess that the government created there because of the disinformation, right? Um, and I think come to another topic. This is maybe even more problematic than the coronavirus, which is why people are not looking for real, realistic sources of information, why people don't really want to know more. So the the websites in Dutch or even in English, if you can translate it to Google Chrome, yeah. you could it like me sometimes. It's fantastic. I have information about almost every corner in this country, a lot of data, a lot of information, but you need to have the time to go there, look at and looking for the, the answers that you that you are actually looking for. What people are doing right now is waiting for someone, call them and say, okay, here is the news on coronavirus. The fake news are so old. Like, uh, I don't know if you know the story, but in the Roman times, one of these emperors were fighting in, in like uh, 200 years after Christ or something like this. He was fighting somewhere in, the, in the Europe. And the Senate in Rome say, oh, the emperor is dead. And the guy say, oh, he's dead. And the end of the story, the guy needs to, after two, three months, coming back to Rome to say, no, I'm alive, I'm here. Oh, so you're alive. So it's, it's, it's amazing how in our genes we prefer to do this kind of uh, news or fake news or you name it. But it's really hard for people to realize, okay, I need to go to the source and understand what's going on. I, I understand. But this coronavirus is impacting our life in a way that I, I, I believe that people need to lose few minutes of their day to really looking for the right information mm. to avoid to be sick and avoid to spread this, this terrible disease in, the, in our society. 
Well, hopefully we're doing just that uh, here this evening on Stalk Talks. You're originally from Brazil, of course, and uh, you mentioned that you have been involved uh, in the development of a COVID program there. Could you tell us a bit more about that? I have this charming accent. I'm sorry about that, but this is the Brazilian English that I can talk. <laughs> but the, the idea is in Brazil, we, we work, we develop a kind of uh, uh, mobile application that helps uh, companies to offer a safe environment for their employees. So the system has these questions, people answer it, and then we offer to the, 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 the company a report about their population and that they can understand, oh, we can bring only 100 people or you know, 1,000 people back to the office. Normally not in the office, but mainly on the, on the you know, like the factories or something like that, that people need to go there, need to work. So that is our work. So we help these companies to maintain their operation on. And, but the, the, I think the most curious part is, is the data that we are, we are discovering. So 96%, almost 100%, don't want to return to work because they're afraid to have the coronavirus. Mm. And then you saw that pictures in Brazil with everybody in the, in the beaches. Like, you know, like, oh, it's, it's quite interesting. Sorry about that. So it's, it's really crazy how people are telling something and doing a different stuff. Yes. So... This app that you've been developing, it's not really a tracking app per se. It's more like a way to provide a company with the sort of the health background and status and patterns of their employees. Right. I think it brings us back to a lot of news that is going on here with the, the testing and the labs and the, the, the new formulas and that our app that is now completed but is sitting on the shelves is there's there's perhaps the news has shifted. It's a different type of news that we have now about Corona, but uh, the message of trying to stay informed and stay relevant is still just as important. So how can we and, and uh, keep ourselves informed in a way that yeah, make sure that we have the right information and, and that it's communicated in such a way that, that it's understandable? Well, that's a really interesting question. The government here has a very nice website with a lot of information about it. We need to spread the word that it is important for us to take care of ourselves uh, and maintain this social distance. It is important to clean the hands as much as you can. Uh, the masks, I would say to use when you go to a public areas or if you go to like a train or, or airplane. If you trust in the government, I, and I trust, I think you need to go there. Other sources are the universities, and they have a lot of uh, publications about that that you can read. But the sad news is we don't have new news. So uh, people are looking for the magical pill or the solution for the problem, and, and we don't have yet. That's what they want. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the thing is, if, if you go to looking for something new, unfortunately, um, you will not find. Everybody is upset with this, so this Brazilian program showed to us that more than 60% of the employees uh, really, uh, told us that suffered some kind of behavioral issue during the quarantine. So they were hormones, uh, have anxiety or, or some kind of depression. 60 is, is a lot. So it, it, is, it is affecting us. And we want to move from this as soon as we can. So we are looking for kind of miracle. And it, it will not happen. It will come with the vaccine next year i hope in the first semester maybe the end of the first semester i think unfortunately that's that's the new i think maybe um renato um corona just needs a really good pr makeover people are bored of the old version of corona they want something new i really want to thank you so much for joining us well, thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. I hope you. I didn't talk too much. I, I really got excited about the topic. No, and thanks for the enthusiasm is is great. Thanks, thanks, Renato. <laughs> thank you, guys. 
If you listened last week, you know that we have a bit of an exclusive today. Uh, as always, in the hospitality segment, we'd love to explore some new hospitality and restaurants. And this week, the restaurant that I'm talking to you about is a recent venture, and it's a one-of-a-kind in The Hague. Uh, I dare to say, perhaps even in the Netherlands. The restaurant is called uh, the Vegetarische Toko, and I had the pleasure of speaking to one of the owners, Max. Uh, Max runs the business with the co-owner, who is also his mother. Uh, one of the first questions that I, of course, asked Max is, what is the vegetarische toko? The vegetarian toko is the first and only plant-based toko in the Netherlands. We provide the Indonesian cuisine, only vegan variants of traditional dishes like rendang, s'more, chicken cashew, chicken satay. I started this with my mother. She's the cook. I'm more front of house. Before we started the toko, we... Uh, participated in different markets to test our product. Yeah, and after doing that for a year, the vegetarian toko was born. So maybe a, a good question to start off for the listeners is, what is a, a, a toko in and of itself? A toko, yeah, in the Dutch context, maybe it has different meanings because you also have, sorry, you have surinamese, tokos. Yeah, it, it's a shop where you can get food and products to cook, but also to take away food. And, and the vegetarian toko, is, you said we focus specifically on the Indonesian cuisine. Uh, and you mentioned some of the dishes from the Indonesian cuisine. Um, why did you choose for the Indonesian cuisine? Well, that's, that's simply because we are Indonesian. I'm Indonesian, my mom's Indonesian. That's what lies close to, most close to our heart. So how did that process of starting the, the, the toko come about? It, it started with me seeing uh, the vegan documentary, What the Health? It's a vegan documentary. Then we both just came to the realization that the way we consume meat yeah, and, and, yeah, and the, the industry, everything around it, can use an upgrade. We were already in the process of starting a toko, but this was like the light bulb that went off. So why don't we start a vegetarian toko? Ah, okay, well, then we, then we need vegetarian rendang. So, yeah, and then the whole process started. My mom developed the meat on her own. It took longer than a year tasting, tasting, throw it away, tasting, till we get the right amount of bite, right amount of structure, get the bumbu. The bumbu is there, the, the sauce, the meats are made, uh, made with. And yes, so it all came together. Because I think that's one of the most interesting things about the vegetarian toko, in my opinion. So you've chosen a concept or a, a meat-based cuisine, and you've completely revolutionized it and designed the meat yourself. Is you've not just said, well, we're going to take some of the vegetarian alternatives that are out there and use them in our cuisine. We're going to design it ourselves. So how is that process of designing, in, in this case, designing meat to go into these these well, I, I want to say famous recipes or recipes that many people have eaten before. Yeah, well, it, it was a challenge. I had the luck that my mom is good uh, with developing products. Uh, she has been doing that all her life. She had a jewelry store. She had understanding. She had a, a software company. So she was always busy with developing stuff. And first thing you do is look online. What is there? Now, there's a lot of jackfruit. Now, jackfruit, uh, you, yeah, you can use jackfruit, but the jackfruit, can get in Holland isn't the same as the fresh jackfruit in Indonesia so there's a different bite so yeah you know that in combination with we wanted to be unique so that was the main driver why we chose to develop our own meat yeah, yeah so without spoiling the secret recipe is um, do you also choose then to, to pick specifically Indonesian ingredients for for that meat or is it is that more of a general level say what how can we get the best meat let's start with that yeah well it's it's two parts the first part is like the meat itself and yeah that's no secret it's made of soy and wheat and then there's the bumbu and the bumbu is like yeah it's the secret recipe of grandma and those two together yeah that's what gets you the dish and so what is it like starting a restaurant with your mom no without hurdles they always say from uh, met familie moet je wandelen niet handelen that is somewhat true, but, you know, I'm blessed with an Indonesian mother, so it's, it's, it's a kind of different from if you have a Western upbringing. 
So I can, I, I'm really close, which means that I'm really close with my mom. We don't have barriers. We can discuss anything and we can really separate like our personal relationship with just the business side. Also, I can learn because she has a lot of experience, like she's been an entrepreneur for more than 30 years. I only, yeah, I consider myself an entrepreneur, but this is my first real enterprise. So yeah, no, things are being good. I can learn a lot from her, but she can also learn a lot from me because I'm younger and uh, no, the dynamic is very good. And um, what are some of your favorite stories from working here in the Vegetarische maybe from guests or from, from comments from people? Well, the, the, from the guest part, it's like the overwhelmingly positive reactions uh, on our food. Yeah, it separates because there, there are people who are vegetarian their whole life, but they are Indonesian. So they have never tasted rendang. And I've got a lot of people who come here and they taste rendang for the first time. And like, seeing that, it brings a smile to my face, you know, because it's wow. Otherwise, it's, how do you call it? Yeah, just the... Maybe it's not a story, but yeah, just the adventure of having a business, you know, starting in Corona, putting everything you have into it, you know, to the last drop. You know, we got this place. It was, yeah, lack of a better word, shit, you know, there was nothing. And we had to build everything from the ground up. And just the dead experience in itself was just you know, like an amazing learning process and yeah, major driver of doing this every day. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. I think all that there's left to say is like, where can people find more information? Uh, you can go to www.thevegetarischetoko.nl Otherwise you can find us at the Prins Hendrikstraat 150A We're open from 3 till 9 And we're closed on a Tuesday And we do delivery and takeaway and sit down yeah. There's there's just one thing you don't do And that's take it, take it easy and take a rest <laughs> I want to thank you so much for your time Thank you for joining me No problem and I hope to see you soon Tom, that was, uh, that was fascinating. I mean, I don't know that much about Indonesian food, although since I've got to the Netherlands, obviously it's, it's been much more evident. But also I'm not a vegetarian, um, but I am interested in the notion of vegetarian-based meat products. And we were talking the other day and we're saying how these are becoming more and more popular and they're getting better and better. Yeah, I think what's interesting is, I mean, we've had some different restaurants in the, the hospitality sector. And I think that when we speak about vegetarian or veganism, very often we speak about it's either or. You're either a vegetarian or you're not, or you're either a vegan or you're not. Mm. But there is a, a significant value to, for example, saying, well, I'm, I'm not going to eat as much meat or I'm only going to eat meat once a week or whatever. Or, and this is really where that that um, plant-based meat comes in, is I want the 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 taste of meat or I want to have a certain dish with meat but exactly. it doesn't necessarily need to be meat like I'm not attached to meat itself it's exactly. just the flavor that it brings and I think the closer people get to sort of being able to replace that the more it becomes a sort of replacement for, for many cases it's a substitute I mean, isn't yeah. it I mean what's interesting is when we were in the, in the city and we saw a, a Burger King that they've also decided to now have like a, a plant-based burger they have their new veggie whopper and I saw it smack out in the front. Uh, so for yeah. those of you who like your Whoppers, there's a there's a veggie meat one now. Um, and but, but back to the vegetarische toko, because that there's one story that, uh, I mean, I, one of the stories that I love that Max told me as well is that uh, Mark Rutte, the, the prime minister, actually was one of the first customers or one of the early customers as well. He was. Uh, Interesting. I mean, I don't know. Is Mark Rutte vegetarian? That is a very good question. I would not have the answer to that. But it's 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 fun to see. And then they've won some awards as well. And, and yeah. really, it's, it's a very cute place. It's a very cute place to visit absolutely worthwhile mm -hmm. absolutely i'm tom and i'm zoe and thank you for stalking with us this evening next week on stalk talks we're going to focus on tom we're going to expand on the vegetarian cuisine it will be the last one mm. and uh, we're going to focus on sla and then afterwards we're going to move into the next month which is going to be covering uh, fish 
I love fish and I love seafood. And I think the Hague has quite a lot of both. Absolutely. Plus, it fits very well with storks. They're also big, uh, big fans of fish. They like it too. So, so I'm looking forward to that one. We also move on uh, in October to a new theme. So as you know, in September, we've been focusing on the theme of time. And in October, we look at peace and its corollary protest.